I believe the the really big challenge is going to be maintaining a sense of community and conducting ourselves with mutual respect and civility as we address the challenges. You can get close to animals. The reason they're not eating you up has to do with the population density of the animals, the, the broad amount of space, but also the fact that they haven't necessarily been terrorized by people all the time. And we work hard to try to get the United States to sign the Paris call. We haven't yet succeeded. Um, they don't like the process that was used. But more importantly, as we know, the current administration does not support multilateral and multi-stakeholder solutions to global problems. They don't endorse these solutions and they don't participate for the most part. And we think that's a mistake. That's civic activist Jim Ellis, followed by George Stone, editor-in-chief of National Geographic Travel, and Tom Burt, Microsoft's Corporate Vice President for Customer Security and Trust. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. The Seattle area lost, not arguably, its greatest civic leader in history a few weeks ago. According to Larry Kaufman, publisher of MarketingNorthwest.com, who worked very closely with Jim Ellis for half a century, no one comes close to Jim. Jim recently died at the age of 98. These are just some of the lasting impacts that Jim Ellis had on our region. Freeway Park, King County Metro, the cleaning up of Lake Washington long before the EPA came along, the Seattle Aquarium, the fertile farmlands of South King County, and the mountains to the Sound Greenway along I-90. I am going to play an interview I had with Jim Ellis 23 years ago. Jim talks about what King County got right and where he felt we missed the boat. I often ask my guests the questions at the time, were they optimistic about the future? Jim was, but he did have some concerns. As you will hear, his apprehensions were well warranted. Would you ever consider a walking African safari? Well, there is one, and George Stone, editor-in-chief of National Geographic Travel, will talk about this and 225 life-changing adventures. And one of his favorite places to visit is revealed. And that happens to be right in our own backyard. I will also be replaying part of Tom Burt's remarks that he made to the Seattle Rotary Club recently on cybersecurity. Back with my interview with the late James R. Ellis in just a moment. Jim Ellis is a partner in the law firm of Preston, Gates & Ellis. From a stroll on Seattle Center grounds to an afternoon swim in pollution-free Lake Washington or attending a Mariners game in the Kingdom, all have one common denominator, and that's the name of Jim Ellis, who was always involved in the concept level, but also toiled through an often cumbersome process to make these dreams become a reality. And Jim, welcome to Profiles of Experience. What do you consider the greatest challenges facing the Puget Sound region as we enter the next century? I believe the the really big challenge is going to be maintaining a sense of community and conducting ourselves with mutual respect and civility as we address 
the challenges that will come up both uh, physically, economically, and personally uh, in, the, in the next few years. Uh, it's, uh, it's crucial that we not get so caught up in how we feel about each physical, economic, or political challenge that we lose sight uh, of our need to be civil to each other, uh, to share uh, whenever we can uh, a feeling that we're all part of the same ballgame. We are indeed all brothers after all, uh, and uh, if we lose sight of that in advocacy or in uh, uh, reaching to win, uh, I think we'll all lose. Are you optimistic that we'll be able to do that? I have to be optimistic, because if one is really pessimistic about that, then one foresees a downhill slide, no matter what the physical circumstances or economic circumstances. I believe at some point we will uh, realize it uh, before we slip into some abyss. What is hopeful is that we might realize it much sooner and then gain from addressing each of the problems that comes along. What do you think makes this area unique? Well, obvious to most people is that it is an extremely beautiful natural area. Uh, and that carries with it some mandatory, uh, obligatory sense of stewardship and responsibility that we don't screw it up. <laughs> what do you think are the most important public policy issues this area has made in the last 30 years that has had the most positive impacts on the region? The most positive uh, for me are uh, environmental. We have addressed, in fact, we were among the first in the country to address the need uh, to clean up our water, to stop uh, fouling our nest. Uh, and uh, uh, that was done uh, uh, in the 50s and 60s before there ever was an EPA or before there were any federal grants when this area decided to clean up its uh, lakes, like Washington Lake Sammamish, and its uh, nearby Puget Sound areas, Elliott Bay and surroundings. Uh, that was, I think, uh, a remarkable thing because it involved lots of people cut across all walks of life and because it was done uh, as a matter of local initiative and not as a matter of response to court orders or to federal uh, mandates or even to state mandates. Then uh, what do you think, uh, I guess along those lines, uh, would be opportunities that we may have taken our eye off? I think we missed the boat badly when we didn't approve the opportunity to have uh, a major rapid transit system in place uh, in 1968 and 1970 when we voted down uh, or didn't approve by a sufficient majority would be a better way to put it, uh, the rapid transit proposal that was presented in 68 and 70. That time uh, we would have had full funding from the federal government in the form of a check which Senator Magnuson offered to deliver if the people would vote for that system. We would have had in place a system comparable to MARTA's in uh, Atlanta, which is a beautiful uh, uh, electric transit system, uh, separated right of way. Uh, and uh, they built their system with the money that we turned down. Mr. Jim Ellis, thank you very much for spending time on Profiles of Experience. Thank you, Paul. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz.
That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. George Stone, Editor-in-Chief of National Geographic Traveler, is on the line. National Geographic just released a book, 225 Life-Changing Adventures. There are top 10 lists from hiking trails and top wildlife parks throughout the world. Mm, Sorry, Tuckwilla, you didn't make the cut. Maybe next time. Let's just get right to the interview. My first question to George was, what was his pathway into his current position as editor-in-chief of National Geographic Traveler? I grew up uh, in Toledo, Ohio, and my mom was a newspaper writer, and uh, I delivered that same newspaper. And when I walked around, the people on my route would give me stamps and coins from their travels around the world, and I loved that. Sort of, they were these tiny little clues and hints of what was far beyond Toledo, Ohio. Uh, Eventually, that led me into writing. It led me into editing, and now I've been affiliated with National Geographic for about 21 years. So I'm the uh, travel editor, and I I oversee our magazine, our website, our newsletter, and our books and travel. So I love it because my job is kind of an extension of who I am and how I see the world and what I'm curious about. I delivered newspapers as a boy, too, and I was just thrilled to get a 50-cent you know, tip or something like that. How did you get these travel coins? Where did that come from? So I would go collect in person. I was delivering the Toledo Blade, and, um, and you know, we're very nice, mellow people in Toledo, and so it would not be sufficient to leave an envelope and say, pay me. <laughs> Collecting involved knocking on the door and building a relationship with everyone on the paper route. I got just very interested in stamps and coins, and they knew it. And so every month, um, anyone who'd ever been anywhere would tell me a little bit about their journey. They'd give me the leftover coins. They'd you know send, give me a postcard or even send me a postcard from their own trip. So I, I think that when you're a kid, um, it can really grow into something. So I was a lot lucky to have a lot of support, um, even though, of course, as a kid, I had no idea where I was going. <laughs> of course. Look at the impact it had on you. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I still have my coin and stamp collection for what it's worth, and the world has changed, and the countries don't even exist. But, you know, it was a great way to be taken seriously by a grown-up when you're a kid. So I think it's important for grown-ups to talk to kids and, you know, and be interested. Um, it means so much to a kid. And so um, it's hard unless there is some common interest. And so in this case, I was to get to know a lot about the people in the neighborhood, where they've come from. Some of the people on my paper route were born in other countries, and that seemed really exotic and important to me. And so that led to storytelling as well. The idea that our experiences can be kind of encapsulated um, in a way that is revealing or just sort of a joyful discovery. So I think that's what I like to hear. And even when it's weird beyond belief for a kid, you know, how the food someone might eat in a faraway place. Uh, But as you get older, everything starts to fall together and make sense. And uh, um, I think that level of exposure and being taken seriously by a grown-up really had a lasting impact. Certainly. That sounds, as I say, it's a fascinating story. Let's get to what we're talking about uh, this morning, and that is the National Geographic's Epic Journeys, 225 Life-Changing Adventures. 
Now, we don't have time from either end to go through all 225, of course, but I understand, George, you wrote the forward into this new book. And uh, let's just start with uh, what's in the book. So we pieced together this book in a number of different ways. It includes short stories by some terrific travel writers. It includes um, itineraries to amazing places and travel tips. And then it includes top 10 lists that are groupings of really cool things like best bird watching experiences in the world or the best train rides through Europe. So uh, we collected all these ideas and tips. And then we also collected some information from our readers um, to see what are people curious about. And we ended up with a book that's culinary experiences or adventure experiences like kayaking or rafting. Also experiences that get you a little bit closer to the history of a region. So our goal is to celebrate what's in the world and to encourage people to connect their own interests with places in the world and say, hey, I do love to scuba dive and that looks like a really special place to be. So that's our goal is to uh, really get people to explore on their own and create their own stories. Let's just say you haven't been on a lot of adventures and travel and you're thinking about doing that now. What do you think would be a really interesting first-time adventure for somebody, for someone who hasn't been traveling a lot and doing a lot of exotic trips. I was just in Seattle and uh, drove to uh, Vancouver Island and took the car ferry over and then drove out to Tofino and uh, kayaked and went on some hikes in these old growth forests. And it was a spectacular adventure. It wasn't hard to do. It wasn't hard to get there, but it was a world away. So to walk in an old growth forest really um, helps you see what's lost when forests are cut down. I mean, it helps you see that most of the forests that we do have are second growth forests. So, um, so travel is all about putting these little clues and bits and pieces together and uh, really developing a deeper sense of the world that we live in. But you don't have to go to the ends of the earth for this. So I just think being out in the wilderness in a national park, um, in a wild place, or even in a, a regional park, Park not far from the city is so important, and there's a ton to see. Last weekend, for instance, I walked in Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C. This is where I live, and I saw this totally spectacular owl on a tree just off the trail. And it was like a you know a foot and a half tall, and it swooped over silently to another branch. And I was like, I cannot believe these amazing creatures are around us all the time. But of course they are. You need to take the time to get out and see them. That's a great point. I mean, I love when you have experiences like that. When you're doing something that's unexpected, you see this magnificent creature that, again, is totally unexpected. Let's say someone's physically challenged, someone is younger with some sort of affliction or older... What would be something that you would suggest would be a good trip for them if they want to get some adventure but can't be biking up a hill five miles long? We just did a story last week online about the best beaches in the U.S., the most accessible beaches. And um, a lot of beaches are making accessibility uh, a priority and investing in paths toward the beach for people of all uh, levels of mobility. And it's a big deal because the world is for everyone to see. So there's tons of uh, trip planning information that National Park site gives anyway. Um, so it's easier to plan trips to national parks. There's also the joy of being there and just recognizing how vast and varied um, the U.S. is. It's thrilling for everyone to be in a national park. Well, you know, you just said something I think very interesting, and you probably 
educated a lot of people about Vancouver Island living in Seattle, even though you can get on a seaplane and be in Vancouver Island in about 45 minutes from here. <laughs> That's amazing. Next time I'm going to do that. The the Pacific Northwest is um, is one of my favorite places in the world, favorite regions, and it's about a sensibility that I see in Seattle. I mean, beyond Seattle, but Aboriginal and Indigenous communities, especially Haida communities up and down the coastal regions, that contribute a lot to a visiting experience because it's not just to see a beautiful place, but it's to understand very significant culture that. Um, has endured for centuries and um, knows and cares for this region and uh, the influence of indigenous peoples in the region. Um, it is a mentality, and there really are a lot of points of contact, you know, about preserving the beauty of the region and preserving what comes from the region, even in things like the cuisine. So Pacific Northwest, I think, is basically just a treasure, and I will always return whenever I can. I was on a safari about 30 years ago. I went to Kruger National Park in South Africa, it was life-changing for me. If someone wanted to be like me, something like that, and hadn't been on a safari, where would you suggest the best place to go to go on a safari? I love safaris. And the safaris are all about an immersion in a completely intact ecosystem <laughs> that functions. There are some safari regions that um, are less visited, and uh, Zambia is one. Zambia does not have the crowds of Kenya or Tanzania. Zambia has, uh, which is also known for the Victoria Falls and Zambezi River, has something very few other places do, which is the offering of a walking safari. Most safaris are driving around in a Land Rover. In Zambia, along with a guide, you can walk on the ground and really experience the scale and the feel of the land. So you're in close contact with it. You can get close to animals. The reason they're not eating you up has to do with the population density of the animals, the, the broad amount of space, but also the fact that they haven't necessarily been terrorized by people all the time. So that, and then also Namibia, uh, Southwest Africa, is a desert dune environment where animals have truly adapted adapted in unusual and fascinating ways, desert giraffes and lions, for instance. But mostly that's a place where you're experiencing these towering dunes um, and this strange coastline, the skeleton coast with all these barking seals and uh, shipwrecks. And it's a little bit like being on another planet, but it's really terrific. My thanks to George Stone, editor-in-chief of National Geographic Traveler. Again, the book is published by National Geographic with 225 life-changing adventures. Tom Bird, Microsoft's Corporate Vice President for Customer Security and Trust, spoke to the Seattle Rotary Club recently about efforts being made worldwide on cybersecurity. Last year, France hosted a Paris Call for Trust and Security in Cyberspace. At the end, 550 businesses and corporations and 60 governments endorsed the concept of working together to make our digital lives safer by reducing theft and disrupting elections. Let's pick up with Tom outlining some of the accomplishments at the Paris Call for Trust. But this was a place where they pulled all of those together and they added two very important ones. Number two, protect the public core of the Internet. And number three, protect malign foreign interference in election processes, which is one we really pushed hard to have added. 
And then we wanted to support the French government in getting endorsements. So we went out and others went out and sought endorsements of the Paris call. And in the end, when it was launched last year, there were over 550 endorsers of the Paris call, including over 60 governments, including four of the five so-called Five I governments. So Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the UK all signed. Um, every NATO country except Turkey and one other all signed. And of course, the missing signatory was the United States. Um, and we work hard to try to get the United States to sign the Paris call. We haven't yet succeeded. Um, they don't like the process that was used. But more importantly, as we know, the current administration does not support multilateral and multi-stakeholder solutions to global problems. They don't endorse these solutions and they don't participate for the most part. And we think that's a mistake because in this arena, as I already described, we think it's critical to have multi-stakeholder solutions because the solutions necessarily inherently require the cooperation and collaboration of government and the private sector, which owns and operates and creates these resources. Paris call anniversaries coming up shortly. You should expect to hear some, uh, new announcements about a significant increase in the total number of signatories. More countries are signing, more um, industry participants, more civil society participants. And we are working now to create communities around each of these principles to go out and talk about how do we actually drive and adopt rules of behavior and other policies that will support each of these principles. It's a big step forward in our effort to get to a global set of rules. But we also recognize that it's not enough to ask governments to do things. The technology industry itself needed to step forward because the technology industry had not itself said, hey, these are rules that we think we should live by in this space. And so we created the Cybersecurity Tech Accord, and we just asked companies to endorse these four very basic principles, that we would protect our users and customers, that we would oppose cyber attacks on civilians and civilian enterprises and innocent enterprises during times of peace, that we'd increase cybersecurity capability everywhere, and that we'd help one another and all of our customers respond in the case of a cyber attack. And when we launched this initiative a year and a half ago, we found 36 other companies from around uh, the world willing to endorse this set of principles with us. The good news is the Cybersecurity Tech Accord is going to announce, this is news breaking it here, please don't spread it around the world because we're gonna announce it next week, that the Cybersecurity Tech Accord is now over 120 companies around the world that have signed these principles. And they not only have signed these principles, but this group meets on a very regular basis with very lightweight governance process to discuss and endorse cybersecurity policies and cybersecurity processes that they support. And the process has become a trusted voice of the industry around the world. When I travel to world capitals and talk about these challenges, the world capitals want to hear from the Cybersecurity Tech Accord what their view is. So we now have a group of like-minded companies that have come together to um, share a collaborative approach to what we need to do to get, um, to improve the security and safety of the online community. We have a question from Pete Delaney. <clears throat> well, again, thank you for being here. My question has to do with Zuckerberg and uh, Facebook. Um, he recently testified that, um, you know, whether it's true or false, we're going to post it. 
Um, how does that fit into your uh, discussion today? And do you come down? Is there a way to somehow regulate that? I know that CNN, MSNBC, for example, refused to run certain political ads because they were blatantly untrue. Zuckerberg says it really doesn't matter. What do you say about that? It's a really interesting um, area because um, there's, there's several different pieces. First of all, political ads. So Microsoft on our advertising platforms, we've elected not to accept political ads. Um, and uh, that's true for LinkedIn, it's for Microsoft. Um, and that's true of others in the community as well. Not Facebook, they make a lot of money from political ads. Um, they did say that they would take down political speech if it's false. And they have big teams of people that are trying to make those judgments, but not political ads. That's just a policy decision they've made, which is obviously informed by the economics around the amount of money they make from political ads. Tom Burt, Microsoft's Corporate Vice President for Customer Security and Trust. I know that we have many issues regarding cybersecurity. I just actually had a pretty big breach myself on my mainframe computer over the weekend. But I do feel better that many countries and corporations are taking this seriously and that there is help on the way. It's something we'll never solve entirely, but people, again, are taking it very seriously. I just wish the U.S. would get on board. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience, my name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to the late Jim Ellis for the interview I had with him 23 years ago, George Stone of National Geographic Travel, and to Tom Burt for his remarks that I was able to pick up at the Seattle Rotary Club on cybersecurity. Remember, today is Election Day. Well, at least it's Election Day if you're listening to this show on November 5th. Get your ballot in the mail so it's postmarked today. Otherwise, it will not count. Don't do what I did a few years ago and leave it in a drawer only to find it three or four days later after Election Day. The postage is free, so there is absolutely no excuse. Congratulations to the late Keith Jackson. ESPN chose Keith as the greatest college football broadcaster in history. Quite an honor. A statue of Keith Jackson will be unveiled at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, on December 14th. My quote of the week, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's true character, give him power. That's Abraham Lincoln. Now, Voices of Experience is just about interviewing people with experience, whether it's in public affairs like today, travel like today, fitness, education, with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. I have available for you what I call the self-employment quiz, and it's on my website, there are 20 questions. The higher you score on this quiz, the higher your prospects for success. You can visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take the quiz. 
That's VoicesOfExperience.com. A reminder that Voices of Experience airs Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. and repeated Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. You can also listen to all the shows by Googling KKNW, click on to podcasts, and then locate Voices of Experience, and you are there. Have a great rest of the week.